Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need when you need it with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. But Rodney, I would prefer to hear a platitude from the acquiring company. Wouldn't you? We're going to let you mostly, and a lot of hand-waving. And then nobody wants to nail that stuff down because I think if they said the truth, it would ruin the deal. everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Rodney Evans, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Aaron Dignan. Chin chin. <laughs> On today's episode, we are going to do another uh, AUA and ask us anything because we had ever so much fun last time, and we are a little punchy today, and that usually makes for some good answering of your questions. But before we do, Let's check in. Yes, let's check in. And today's check-in question is going to be fun. I'm very curious to see what is you'll it? say. Yeah, I sometimes they're serious. Sometimes they're you know they have gravity. Today, not so much. I just want to know what you would invent if you could invent something today. Mm. You know, like you can be Nikola Tesla for the day. What do you want to make? What's in the notebook? Ah, uh, I mean. All the things that sprang to mind are just like so cringe. I'm just like... Is it an OXO kitchen appliance? No, it was like, you know, a a mass market solution for wind power. But like, I mean, I'm going to stick with that. How altruistic. I know. (laughs) I know. But then I'm also like a really great sleep aid. Mm. That gives me no side effects or dependency of any kind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So both of those things. The most micro and I'd like to deal with climate change and also go the fuck to sleep. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, going to sleep sounds great. For the listeners that don't know, the night before last, I didn't sleep at all. So that it's seems like... It's because of the full moon. I would, I would pay. Yeah, it was the moon combined with a couple other things. Um, mm. So, but I'm not... I don't want to do anything too too serious and altruistic. I think, I think the thing that I'm most interested in, and this is both as like a human being and a parent, and it relates to your sleep thing, actually. I wish there was a way to just be unconscious safely. <laughs> So, so like, you know, every, everybody's been there, right? Where your dog is losing his shit or you're on an airplane with your kid and they're miserable or you yourself are like, get me out of here or or you're stuck on a bus ride. I wish there was just like a little thing on my iPhone that I could hit and it would be like, and I'm just out or someone else is just out like a tranquilizer gun, but so much sweeter. I like that you added in at the end or someone else. You're like, could be me, could be the person sitting next to me on the plane. Yeah, just like <laughs> dunk and you're done. <laughs> Completely healthy. You wake up refreshed. You know? All right, should we do some questions? Yeah, I think we okay. have three wonderful listener questions today. Yeah, we have so many questions from y'all. We have quite a backlog, but keep them coming because these are my favorite episodes to make, I think. Yeah, and we can um, make more. Okay, so the first one is this. 
I'm going to pose it to you to start because I know how strongly your passion is (laughs) for this field of the canvas. How does resourcing work in a world of consent and participatory governance? Mm. Mm. Well, my first question is which which aspect of resourcing? So we might have to cover both. Adventure man. You know, because because really, like some people say resourcing and they mean people. They mean yeah. like who works on what. And some people say resourcing and they mean money. So let's talk about both. Great. So I think in a world of consent, well, first first of all, caveat, and this is my favorite caveat to give when people are learning these moves. If you're using consent, resourcing can work however you want. Right. Right. <laughs> right? Like right. you can you can consent to traditional budgeting and traditional command and control resource allocation if you want. But but the way we typically explore and, and play with it and the way a lot of our clients and a lot of the organizations we study do it is that they think about on the human side, the human resources, not a term that we love, there's a lot of a lot of self-direction and a lot of voting with your feet where at, at a minimum people are sort of nominating themselves or, or putting themselves up for different roles and positions. At a maximum, there are two-way fits where where the team adding to their team or the individual who stood something up has to consent and the person filling the role has to consent. So there's a lot of like social negotiation, figuring out who's willing to do what and who's committing to do what. And then, of course, there are other methods that happen as well where you might come up with election-based role filling, which also includes that person's consent or rotational role filling, like who's going to take out the trash this week. So I think that kind of resourcing is almost always with the consent of the individual to do the work, fill the role, play play that, that game, with the yeah. exception that sometimes you consent to an election or a rotation or, or, or someone who has the right to ask you to do something. And if you've consented to that, you're kind of in, you know, in for a penny and for a pound in terms of what you work on. So that's the people side. Do you want to play with that or do you want to talk about the money side? No, I mean, I think that's a good overview. I really want us to do a whole episode on talent marketplaces because they're yeah. so fun to talk about. Totally. But I think in general, you know, what I like to see in terms of resources is just people who are not stuck in monolithic jobs. And, right. and you know, as much fluidity as we can stand in terms of people being able to um, move to work on bets or move to work on a mission-based team or, um, you know, the flexibility to reallocate our time and talent based on emergent needs rather than those things always being in addition. Yeah. And one of the, you know, one of the principles, this was actually a design principle that came from a client mm. who was doing structure work several years ago for the ready. And they had identified this need for a bunch of cross-functional stuff to happen that hadn't been. And so before we got into doing this structure work, one of the design principles that they came to as their number one principle, which I thought was fascinating, was hold 15% slack in the system. Yeah, yeah. Because they were just like, if we don't have any wiggle room, all of these things are just dreams. Mm -hmm. And we can't really have any of them. And so if we don't design our structure such that there is room, then we can't do any of this other stuff that's outside of the day-to-day. And we can't do anything else based on opportunities or threats that happen in the environment. So. Those are just like a couple of of sprinkles that I would like to see in the resourcing conversation of how are we really dedicating our time and attention on the things that are persistent and consistent and for running the business and the things that are more responsive, more um, emergent and more ephemeral. 
I love that point because it is true if you don't have Slack in the system, you're essentially saying, I think things are going to go perfectly. <laughs> like, like essentially, we're all just going to do exactly yeah. what we planned. And, and you know, if you're complexity conscious, you know that's not true. So if things are not going to go according to plan, then what do you need? You know, what do you need to have in place? The other thing that occurred to me while you were talking about resourcing is that, and I think we've we've confronted this and learned a lot about this in the last few years at the Ready. There's a trade-off, like in all org design, with with fluid role mix stuff around. Are we trying to optimize for people getting experiences mm. and getting more variety and more more breadth to their to their career and to their roles? Or are we trying to optimize for expertise and and the execution of something and like being sure that it's going to work? And and neither end of that polarity is right or wrong, but you're always in that polarity. And depending on how you set up your resourcing and set up the the rules of the game, you can end up in a situation where like people are having a really interesting, really challenging, and wonderful career experience, and you're not actually executing in in a highly performative way and by vice versa you can have the opposite as well where there's just like too much too much expertise in too many roles and there's not enough exploration and learning going on for the system to keep breathing so just something to like watch as you set this up and as you think about the qualifications for certain roles and you know how, how you get in them how you stay in them how they rotate things like that yeah, that also reminds me, I feel like you were the person who really, I don't want to say introduced me, but <laughs> pointed my attention toward apprenticeship as as being a really good mental model in complex systems. Like where we know that a lot of the overly complicated HR processes around, you know, development and career pathing and competency models and things like that are just like, not real. They're, <laughs> they're not real. I mean, they're real things that are written down in PowerPoint decks, but they're sure. not real things yeah. that work. Um, I, I feel like your your point reminded me of like, are you know, are we, are we here to get really good? Or are we here to yeah. deliver really great work? Yeah. And and one thing that I think we've done informally but effectively in a lot of slots, spots at the ready is having that more like apprentice, you know, master craftsman. Yeah. relationship and and what i really like about it and the and the reason that i think it works is that it is oriented toward learning not management so yeah. the the master craftsman is there to be like i know i actually know what good looks like and i can help <laughs> you to know right. too and also to do that but they're not there to just be like let me shape you into my image and and be the sole judge and arbiter of whether you are good and what your future prospects could look like nice yeah, I one of my favorite tropes from old martial arts films is that when someone comes to the teacher, they start by fighting them. Uh-huh. They're like, like you think you're a master at kung fu tiger style? Yeah. I'm going to fight you with my style. Yeah. And then if you win, then you're my teacher. <laughs> and yeah. if you don't win, then I'm moving on. And and I, it's hilarious to me that it's so hard to evaluate most things in work mm-hmm. because of complexity and the richness of circumstance. Like, it's really easy with something like fighting. You're just like, oh, you can either beat me or I can beat you. Mm-hmm. But then you're like, who's the better salesperson or who's the better, you know, podcast person or who's the better like coach? It's it's like, well, ugh, how long is a piece of string? And there's no way to like evaluate those things as easily and as purely. So it it creates yeah. a little bit more of a rodeo. Wait, is that what happened when you went back to Taekwondo? 
Uh, Did you have to fight the teacher to know if he they, could Due to insurance reasons in the U.S., we no longer <laughs> practice in such a way. They did sort of haze me, though, as you know. Uh-huh. They, they certainly put me through my paces and, and made it evident that I was not in the best shape of my life. Um, they got their point across. Yeah, the point was still made. But, like, I needed to re-practice. But, uh, but yeah, so I think that's that's that half of it. On the money side, I feel like we've talked a lot about this on the show as well, but essentially figuring out how you allocate resources is about doing a little bit of what what Ronnie was just talking about, figuring out what is fixed and what is kind of already committed, and then figuring out what is variable and trying to preserve as much ability to steer and redeploy and be fluid with Mm -hmm. the variable part as you can. And that might include things like having people, you know, play with monopoly money to do kind of a wisdom of the crowd thing that we've talked about. It might include allocating resources in big chunks to circles or teams that they then allocate in a more agile way over the course of the quarter or the month or whatever it might be. But but essentially, yeah, you're trying to maximize the flexibility of the system to deploy resources as needed. It's sort of just-in-time manufacturing brought to the resources game. And if you want to know more about that, I recommend getting into the beyond budgeting literature and, you know, making a making a weekend of it. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know if you'd add anything to to that. I mean, the only thing said. I'd add that I've seen in a client and also we're starting to mess around with internally, though it's early days. So we because we have had a way of funding experiments in the past, uh, I would just encourage people in companies to have that. I often find like when we start talking about experimentation in companies, people are like, that's not a line mm-hmm. in the PML. Right. You know, like, oh, oh, you know, and it's like maybe transformation is a line, but that's, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. there's not always just like a little pot of money for like, let's go try some shit and mm-hmm. find out. So I think that that has to be some, especially if you care about innovation, that should be some percentage of your overall like operating cost for the year yeah. should be innovation money that is specifically earmarked toward experimentation, which now at the ready in the future, we are going to call our bets for <laughs> obvious reasons, because initiatives sometimes sound like this is something we're going to do. Right. And no bets matter what. Feels like this is like a put that we're going to make and yeah. we're going to see what happens. But what we've realized through our initiative process that we want to change is there is also a space for bounties inside of our system. And this is something that we've seen a lot in DAOs and we've seen actually in some traditional clients too, where it's like just the stuff that's like nobody's job, but we Mm -hmm. really love to see it get sorted out. And I think for us internally, we'll just attach a little bit of money to those bounties and it will be mostly symbolic because we're all quite well paid. But, But the signal will be, this is worth something yeah, to yeah. us. It's worth. And and since it is actual value delivered to you, our member, you should do the thing. You yeah. should you should fulfill the bounty. So um so just a little extra PSA on bets and bounties and how to maybe put a little put a few shekels aside for those. Those are smart moves. Hmm, I thanks. think the 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 macro thing to watch out for that that I think you hear about in the literature is like getting into a situation where you've made a commitment with your money and the thing isn't working out, but you're still pouring money into it. Or you have something that's really blowing the doors off that you didn't expect, and you don't have further funding to double down on that bet because it's all been pre-allocated, right? And so you know, if if something is working, you want to be able to, in real time, double and triple down. And if something is not working, in a very reasonable short order, you want to have it in a venture funding style model where it's like, there's no more money for that thing. It's not working anymore. 
And usually the annual plan is a little bit of a too blunt instrument to kind of pull that off. Yeah. Ticket punched. (laughs) Boom. All right. (laughs) Question one, done. Welcome to the Polar Express. (laughs) All right. Should we do the second one? Sure. All right. I'm going to throw it to you. So this is about culture merging, which mergers and acquisition has been has been a focal point in the of, of yours over the years. It's in the air and it's it's in your brain. So how to bring together two opposing cultures, or is it even possible, is the question. Thinking something like a large bureaucratic behemoth buys a small, innovative, fast-paced business to bolster their portfolio, and then the inevitable culture wars kick in, which is sort of a tale as old as time. Like ev- almost every acquisition looks like that, where somebody is buying speed and innovation and energy and creativity because they don't have it anymore. And then as soon as they get it, it's like, you know, a dog catching a squirrel or something. It's like, now what do I do with this? And usually the answer is kill it. Kill it. <laughs> so um, can you talk a little bit about theories on how to do that well or differently that have been brewing for you? Yeah. Okay. We're going to definitely do like a whole arc on M&A because it is everywhere. And it's it's one of the most common corporate practices I lump it actually kind of in with performance management and change management that everybody knows that it doesn't deliver and it just keeps happening. You have to do it anyway. Like you never talk to an executive that goes, <laughs> let me tell you about this acquisition we completed last year. I'm Crushed just really it. proud of how it exceeded all of my expectations <laughs> and the cultures have integrated seamlessly and our, all of our hopes and dreams came true. It just ne- it never, ever, ever happens. And so it's just this weird collective myth that we've all bought into where we're like, let's just keep doing that. Yeah. So there's, I have lots of thoughts about how this could be different, but the first is that clarity around... So so if you are... There, there are two parallel tracks here to talk about. One is where we're going to, for real, try to let the squirrel still be a squirrel and not just murder it because now we can. And I think this is a hard thing to do. I don't know if I've ever seen it successfully done, but I've certainly heard a good pitch from <laughs> very large companies being like, we're buying you for speed and we're just going to leave you alone. We appreciate (laughs) how special your culture is and we know how important it is for you to preserve that. And so we're just going to let you be. Doesn't doesn't usually go like that. I mean, I think Zappos is a good example of that inside of the Amazon mothership where they seem to have been Mm -hmm. largely left to their own devices. But you don't see many where there's like really some kind of wall that protects something special. Well, and there's like a there's like levels to this game where yeah, there are the occasional Zappos. I, it makes me want to gag to say this, but like some of the Facebook portfolio companies uh-huh. feel yeah. like they've been mostly left alone. The, the but the next level is are the creative drivers, the founders, the source energy people, are they sticking around or are they getting sure. fed up and bouncing? And even in those like, you know, titular cases, 100% of the people that founded those companies is like, this sucked. This was mm. not good. Mm-hmm. I'm out. I'm doing something else. If they aren't fired outright. Sure. I mean, look they wait at, for their two-year lockup period. Yeah. Like, Peace. But yeah, it's bad. <laughs> it's bad. Even when it looks good, it's bad. Yeah. So, so in the case where we're going to really try to play that game, to me, first and foremost, is clarity between the leadership teams on authority. Cool. So it's like, if nothing else, can we get clear on what the acquired company retains Mm -hmm. in terms of its own 
decision making. Decision rights work. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, probably we're going to have to go on to like, I'm just going to use like Oracle because they buy a lot of companies. Like, (laughs) yeah, we're probably going to have to go on to Oracle's benefits. But like, do we have our own budgeting process? Do we have our own hiring authority? Do we have to use Oracle's recruiting team? Or can we use, continue to like... Can we just at least get clear on where we do have some runway to keep things as they are and where we need to fold in? Because there are lots of places where folding in is going to make sense from just like an efficiency perspective, but it shouldn't just be assumed that it's all the places, like but Rodney, especially if we're trying to be special. I would prefer to hear a platitude from the acquiring company Wouldn't that you? we're going to let you mostly and a lot of hand waving. And then the, nobody wants to nail that stuff down because I think oh, if yeah. they said the truth, it would ruin the deal. Oh, wait, 100% would. Right? Yeah, and they and they will say all, all of those things. I've been in the rooms and heard those things that are like, this is really neato and we would love to see it continue. And it's like, just kidding. <laughs> We're going to fire you all. Yeah. Um, so, but, 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 in, in, in the example where we want this yeah. world to live, that That's is a, a thing to try. And then there's a bunch of other OS work that I think will get you incremental goodness in terms mm. of maintaining the spirit of the thing. The other path, though, that I have been really recently directed toward by (laughs) my good friend Doug is actually just acknowledging what you just said, Aaron, which is that anything the acquiring company says to you in the lead up to change of control is lies. Yeah. (laughs) And that the better work, which doesn't answer the question asked, but say la vie, it's our show. Uh, The better work to be doing if you're the ready or if you're a person who's part of the strategy and ops office or the M&A office or whoever does it at your company is getting really, really clear on why you are buying that company. Mm-hmm. Because the advice that I've been given recently is like a lot of times the downstream mess shows up as being cultural. Right. But but that is the that is the long tail symptom of what was kind of a borked deal to begin with because it wasn't really clear in the choosing of targets and the prioritization of targets and the acquisition of a target why and right. what the what the acquisition was meant to do. Right. And that if there was real clarity and specificity and then in a perfect world, transparency around that, probably a lot of deals wouldn't get done. But yeah. also, the acquiring company could be really clear to be like, we want to buy Murmur because X. And, yeah. then, and then that company can be like, no, thank you. Or right. that seems like a totally valid reason. We would love to be your you know, software partner, whatever. So I so I think that to the extent that you can get further up the stream and get more of the clarity happening there before the acquisition targets are even in the room and even in the conversation, the right. better. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about that mental model is it's kind of a forks in the road model where if you start with the intent, then... One, if the intent is about integrating a technology or acquiring people and putting them to work in bigger jobs, and we can just say that, yeah. then cultural integration cool. is a way. Why do we even need to talk about that? Like, that's not what this is about. This is yeah. about you're going to rip the guts out of our tech and use it, and we all get paid. Do we want to do that or not? Dope. Let's you're going to take all that. of our air quote big leaders and put them in big positions. Do we all want to do that or not? But if the answer is like, no, we want to make a bet on the category you're building that's a 10-year bet and we want to mostly leave you alone. And that's what they say the intent is because they're afraid you're going to capture a category that they care about strategically or grow big enough to eat them. Then we can have a cultural conversation about what rights we're going to retain. 
It is fascinating, though, to your point that like in none of those situations we just described, is there really a merger of OSs, no. right? No. Like it's either it's yeah. either the destruction of yours to feed this ambition or it's the true separation of church and state to be yeah. like, this is a separate circle or a separate subsidiary or whatever it is. But there's not a ton of OS interaction in those in those scenarios, which is funny. And I think the only way that the OS move is really possible, which I have yet to see, but call me, everyone, when this opportunity arises, because I will be there with you to help (laughs) figure it out, is where both companies want to redesign their OS. Right. Right. And where where both of them are like, we have a thing. We're not totally satisfied with it. We're holding it lightly. And the real move is that there is a new company being formed from these yeah. two partners. Yeah. And we want to make significantly different decisions in most of the fields of the canvas. And we want to do that collaboratively. And that is more of an actual merger. Totally. The M of the M&A. That's the M. Yeah. Where it's like, yeah, if if you know the groups coming together are somewhere between 30 and 70% of the revenue, there's going to be a collision no matter yeah. what. And, and if we can be open to like taking the best parts of each and finding a new third way, like that is super exciting and interesting. And I, yeah. I have actual clients that fit that bill where they've dealt with like a pretty sizable acquisition that feels like a merger and there mm-hmm. isn't clarity about who's driving the bus or why. It's like, well, yeah. we're just as big as you. What, you know, like, yeah, this is, this is more of a, like an accident of the term sheet that we're acquiring you versus you acquiring us. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think that's interesting. But to me, I, I'm seeing this like forks in the roadmap. And it's like, if you're in point A3, this is the move. And if you're in point C7, this is the move. Yeah. And it's, it's such a big field of play. It is such a big field of play. And the thing is, not to be like so preachy about it, but <laughs> having worked in and around a couple of big transactions in my life, it really is a great time for OS reinvention. Right. Because it's like you're kind of, even for even if you're the acquiring behemoth, you're disrupting yourself by choice anyway. Yep. Even if the disruption is now you have to dismember and eat this squirrel, you're still being disrupted in some way because like you're just getting an influx of a whole bunch of energy and resources and ways of working and tech and nonsense that you have to digest somehow. Yeah. So it's like, it's such a great phase shift that one could use as a time to reinvent. It's just usually, I think that moment feels more like fog of war and like, let's just, (laughs) let's just like double down and figure out how we can control these yahoos rather than being like, since everything is in play anyway, what if we did it right this time? The acquisition is an acknowledgement that something isn't right. Oh, yeah, that's smart. Like by definition, if you're, if you're Adobe and you're acquiring Figma, you're saying to the world, like something is going on here that we didn't already have figured out. And so Mm -hmm. now we're going to do this to like make it work. Mm -hmm. And that's fine, but it is an admission. And to your point, when you're admitting that things are not perfect, what a great time to be like, why are we not on top of this, right? Like what is missing from our operating system that prevented us from seeing this market? Because like they bought Figma for 20 billion dollars right and so like they missed a 20 billion dollar market shift even though they're the market leader yeah that's an admission yeah you know that like something was not right and buying them solves it plugs this hole in the dam but it doesn't plug the next one 
That's such a good point. And like, how much fun could we have facilitating some of those conversations? Like, even in the like post Figma integration, to have a conversation with the steering team that made those decisions to be like, how did we get to this point? What signals did we miss? What scenarios did we not consider? Or were we so strategic that we were watching this competitor and being like, we're just going to wait for them to get to this level of maturity. And if that, if we were seeing around that many corners, what's our playbook for doing that four more times if it works? Like there's so much juice in there that you could, that you could extract. Yeah. Even if the, even if the takeaway is that you're really smart, it's like, cool. Now how do we codify that and and make sure, and then how do we look back to see if it worked out the way we thought it would? Yeah. Um, But yeah, if you're treating if you're treating the venture community as your comic book category and you make movies and you're just like, who are we going to pluck next? That's cool. But generally speaking, people don't pay $20 billion for the rights to a comic book. Um, So it seems like a late, seems like a late swing to me, (laughs) but but who knows? Very interesting. More to come on this. Tell us also listeners, what else you want to know about transactions? Because we obviously are very interested in that yes, space. Yes, intrigued and digging in. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question. All right, third and final. <laughs> okay, so this is from a while ago in our Operating Rhythm episode. If you haven't listened to it, please go listen to it. It was one of my favorites because I got to just rant about stuff, which is so different than all our other episodes. In that episode, Rodney mentioned how Operating Rhythm supports inclusion. This seems so important when we are all getting in a tizzy about how to, quote, do inclusion better. Mm. Please dedicate an episode to expanding on this. A whole episode. Yeah, well, you know, we're not going to do that, but we're going to try <laughs> to get... Give me a type five, though. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to give you our hottest takes instead, and then maybe there will be an episode in the future. Yeah. So, I mean, this is this is definitely not my, not my area of expertise, but I've learned a lot listening and, and participating over the last few years. I would say, like... When you're thinking about inclusion, one of the challenges is defining what you mean. Mm. And and this is where I see a lot of systems get off the rails where they're like, let's do inclusion. Inclusion means everybody does everything. Everybody sees everything. Everybody has a voice in everything. Hates it. And that's not yeah, she doesn't like it. And that <laughs> that doesn't work very well. It doesn't scale very well as you can imagine. Like that's really a return to consensus with with a new label, you know, with a it's DEI also incredibly label. Patronizing. On it. Right. Right. You're just, as Aaron likes to say, you're just meat in the room under the banner of this performative thing. Right. Look how inclusive that we've committed we are. to. Look how, yeah. look how Sorry, all we had left was folding chairs. <laughs> look how everybody's here <laughs> and none of you are invited to speak. Right. Exactly. So, so that's why, generally speaking, at the Ready, we focus more on equity and more on share of voice and more on like just the practical ways that people can contribute and, and get involved. But it seems like because it because you start to open the the Jedi, you know, grapefruit and and there's so much to to eat here, the reality is that you have to make sure that first of all, you have a place that can sustain a diverse membership and that is that is able to do that in a way that does not scare people away who have different identities. Then you have to actually bring those people to the table in the first place. Then you have to make sure that they can all see at eye level in terms of making sure that we have enough equity, we have enough psychological safety, we have enough guardrails to to allow people to participate. And then you can play the inclusion game, which is like, 
are we talking in rounds? Are we hearing from everyone? Are we, do we have the right roles around the table? And this has been a lot of the Ready's work of the last year is figuring out as we sort of decentralize into a set of circles that are pretty autonomous and independent, but who make decisions that affect the whole membership, how do we make sure we have the right roles sitting around the table in the form of elected representatives, in the form of different perspectives, including a Jedi perspective? How do we how do we make sure that those collections are roughly right so that when we are making decisions in a pocket that in a way that's inclusive to who's there, but not inclusive to everyone, we're at least respecting and representing the equity of everyone involved and representing the general, you know, values and principles that we've all consented to. So I know that's a really long-winded answer full of a lot of complexity, but this topic is that. And trying to be like, let's just do well on inclusion is not is not going to yield a lot of fruit in my experience. Mm-hmm. I have so much to say about that. I, right? I mean, you could do a whole episode. I really want to. You could do I'm three gonna episodes. Quick. I'm going to be okay. kind of quick. So <laughs> I'm going to, because Aaron already talked about, you know, inclusion not being just have everybody there so they can be in the room because that's not really how work gets done effectively. So I'm going to, I'm going to start from the assumption that we are including the people who need to be in the room because they're contributing. They're mm-hmm. substantially impacted, et cetera. And then from there, I'm just going to say a couple things about opera them. So first, Aaron briefly mentioned rounds. I'm a big fan of rounds. Just holding space and being really clear about participation is really effective. So doing something in a round where it's like every person gets a turn to ask their clarifying questions and they don't get to talk over each other is great for including all of the voices and perspectives in the room. Same for reactions. And I particularly, um, because of various identities carried and behaviors accepted. I particularly like reaction rounds where either the proposer or the presenter or the person on the hot seat isn't allowed to respond (laughs) Um, so that each person sort of gets to say their piece with the safety of not immediately having to defend their position. (laughs) The second thing is in terms of just facilitation, one thing that I really have appreciated about working more in a more distributed way, both with clients and internally, is it's given us an opportunity and and frankly, you know, no choice, but to think about how people participate effectively in meetings and to be like, let's not do everything verbally and let's not do everything in prose. Like let's, if we have a four-hour strategy session, let's have a mix of pulling digital cards that we vibe with, of speaking in rounds, of jamming in a document, of making sticky notes in a mural board. Because like, let's tr- let's try to appreciate that people have different processing and different learning and different contribution styles. And, and no one of those things is going to work for everyone. So let's try to have a variety of ways to participate. So at least for some period of the meeting, hopefully every person is like, this is my jam, sticky right. notes. This is where I shine, you know? <laughs> um. The other thing is like, uh, no, there's two more things. I'm sorry. Can't, I can't stop. The meeting, the meeting types that we talked about in that episode, which were primarily retrospectives, governance or a decision-making meeting and action meetings 
are specifically designed for every person who is there to contribute. And so again, in order to avoid performative inclusion, what we want is to see meetings where truly like every person has needs that they are putting in the triage column or they have comments that they're putting on sticky notes or they have reactions that they're sharing in that round of decision-making. And and I actually think it's a really good signal if what you're seeing is that that's not the case in terms of who's there, then investigating a bit why that is. Is yes. it a psych safety issue? Is yes. it a role issue? Is it a shared work issue? Because that will help with my last point, I promise, mm-hmm. which is I really value, and I've gotten really good advice from our Jedi steward, Tanisi, who has been on this show before, around people playing from role. Yeah. And, you know, when you when you just show up as a human being who's on a team, of course, you know, you're entitled and welcome to bring your opinions and your expertise and whatever. And in a really vibrant, modern system, ideally, we are hmm. playing from role, where it's like Aaron is showing up with his finance hat on to be like, we cannot afford the bet that Rodney just proposed. He's not showing up to be like, let me litigate Rodney's idea as a person. Mm -hmm. He's like, with this hat, here's the deal. And I think it can feel a little constraining, but in terms of inclusion, it also just gives us rails for how to play in a Mm -hmm. way that's a lot more effective than just everybody show up with your ax to grind and see if you can get into the fray. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's a great list. I Thank you. I, I think that uh, I don't have anything in terms of new, new major things to add. The only thing I'll double click on that you said that I think has just been a learning zone for me is that there are cognitive differences in terms of how people can participate in different ways like you talked about. Mm. And sometimes when you do that investigation that you talked about, like, this is not happening. Why is it not happening? Why are we not getting more equal participation? You'll hear, like, I think a little slower than this. And so I need, like, the hour after the meeting is when I have all these good ideas or whatever it might be. Or I, you know, I need silence and you always play music in that part or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Like, those are things that that are good to, to think about in terms of meeting design, too, and play with not just are we doing it in a round? Not just are we doing you know this module, but also what way are we doing it, and who does that preference? And are there ways to like rotate that, or think about that, or at least just acknowledge like who are we, and what yeah. are we showing up with, you know? And yeah. what is that? How does that help us get things done? And if somebody gets migraines when they're on camera, like that's good to know, you know, as a designer. So yeah. more more info equals more inclusion possibilities. Totally, dig it. We did it. Is that it? We did it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know. Great. Uh, let's wrap this thing up. That All was right. fun. I think yeah. I think now we know three questions is the number of questions. It's the right number. We have to stop fooling ourselves. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a limit in terms of whip. Exactly. Limit um, our AUA whip. And all right. let's get a few more initials in there. Yeah. Well, if you like our if you like our AUA whip, give us a review. Drop drop a few words, drop a couple stars, whatever your application allows you to do, go ahead and do that. And send the show to a friend, send the show to a boss. I'm sure there are sites online where you can send someone a link anonymously. Like we could do are. like a don't be an asshole episode <gasps> and you could send that, that to a friend. Oh my God. Should we make you you all tell us 
If you want us to make a don't be an asshole episode for your boss. Because <laughs> we could do that. And we could provide the, the anonymous link to, to share it through. I love it. All right. A quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good as always. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us with all your questions by emailing podcast at theready.com. As for you, thank you so much for listening. Now go change something.